Wilson, you sent the game-winning email at the buzzer, avoiding a 4.55 meeting on everyone's calendar. How did you do it? I got a huge assist from Grammarly, an AI writing partner that helped me make my point. 96% of Grammarly users say that it helps them craft more impactful writing. Would you agree? Grammarly helped adjust my tone to navigate tough work conversations. And it works everywhere I write, so I can quickly communicate effectively. Your teammate used Grammarly to summarize an important document, making a three-pointer. How did he do it? It only took one click. When everyone uses Grammarly, everything just makes sense. You made an incredible slam dunk to end the game. The meeting was canceled, and your team will go home champions. Go to Grammarly.com slash podcast to download it for free. That's Grammarly.com slash podcast. Easier said, done. What's going on, everyone? Welcome back to another episode of the Sixer Sense Podcast. Today joining me is Matt, AJ, and Joe. What's going on, guys? What's happening? What's good? How's everybody doing? Saturday, we're going to give some NBA Finals Game 2 analysis. We're going to get into the Sixers uh, supposedly offering Jimmy Butler the max, talking about Tobias Harris and the Sixers giving both of his brothers some free agent and draft workouts, and also talking about the latest mock draft and Sixers options at their picks in the upcoming draft. So let's start with the finals. So last night, Warriors bounced back to even up the series 1-1 with a 109-104 win. I'd say the biggest thing about last night was, besides the Andre Iguodala shot, I thought Boogie Cousins coming back and having his best game in his playoff career and most important game as a Warrior with 10 points, 11 rebounds, 6 assists. Just his impact on the game last night was definitely needed, with, especially when Clay got hurt. I, I feel like his presence definitely made a big difference. And I, I'm kind of happy for Boogie Cousins in a way. Just his career path to this point, you know, he's always had this reputation of being this hothead who is just like a stat stuffer but can't make a contribution to a winning team. Then obviously him tearing his Achilles last season, then tearing his quad uh, in Game 2 versus the Clippers this year. And just to, just to see him back on the floor and being one of the biggest components to the Warriors' Game 2 victory. So even though I, I don't root for the Warriors, I, I was pretty happy for him. It's interesting because we a lot of people are talking about how you know Boogie coming back could actually hurt the rhythm that they're in right now. But uh, Windhorse wrote an article about how Golden State going back to those more old-school lineups with Boogie and even Andrew Bogut in the lineup and how it actually helped them, you know, stop Toronto. Because even though when you have a guy like Boogie or Bogut in, you're pretty much going to give up the Kawhi off of pick and rolls. What you're going to do is you're going to stop their interior game pretty much. You know, when Kyle Lowry or Fred, uh, Fred Van Vliet start to drive to the hole, they're going to run into a brick wall in Boogie or Bogut. And Toronto ended up shooting under 50% in the paint throughout the game. So, And just, yeah, 
no one's going to ask Boogie to be a world beater at this point, you know, being that he's still not 100%, but he made a clear impact throughout that game. Yeah, Boogie played really well last night, and it was at the point, like, game, was it game one when he kind of just looked absolutely gassed? Was a virtual non-factor, and now he's back being his normal self. I mean, when you play with guys like Curry and Thompson, you're never going to be like a high-volume scorer, especially in the front court. But, yeah, he looked great last night. So did Bogut, too, for the limited minutes he saw. You see that Bogut caught and, and finished on three alleys last night? That was all six of his points on this pick-and-roll alley-oops with Draymond. And also, right from the start of the game, obviously Boogie started, and the Raptors went right at him from the get-go. And they used Kyle Lowry and Kawhi on the pick and roll to get switch on to Boogie. And Boogie held them to one of four shooting, defending Lowry and Kawhi at the start of the game. And I heard some people say that Boogie looked bad at the beginning, but defensively he was he's playing capable defense when he was getting switched on those pick and rolls. And just playmaking down the stretch was huge, especially when Klay Thompson got hurt, because having another playmaker alongside Steph Curry is so crucial for the Warriors because Besides Curry, there's no one on the roster besides or besides Boogie and Curry. There's no one on the offense that can create shots for themselves and others. And Boogie being on the floor just opens up the offense for the whole rest of the team. And even also down the stretch of the game, Boogie had a few blocks in the last few minutes of the game. One on Kawhi, and he had a few others that just set up the Warriors just to continue their run they had. Yeah, and also last night, that was such a win by commission with so many guys stepping up because – Curry wasn't right for a majority of the game. And then dude, when you have Quinn Cook come in and get you nine points right off the bench pretty quickly, right around the time when Clay gets hurt, that, that just shows you how you – know, that, that just shows you their winning mentality, really. Quinn Cook was their leading scorer in the second half, nine points, three or four from three. And he had that one big one last, uh, what was it, minute and a half of the game that extended their lead to five before the Iggy shot. Imagine someone telling you, before the game, there'd be no Kevin Durant. Clay Thompson would get hurt at the early part of the fourth quarter, and Steph Curry would go scoreless in the fourth quarter, and the Warriors would still find a way to close out the Raptors on their home court. Like, guys in the Warriors, they're just always ready. Like, when you see guys come off the bench, like, nobody ever rolls their eyes, like, oh, no, it's this guy, and, like, they come in and get smoked. They're always ready. Like, 1 through 15. And this, this is where I feel like Steve Kerr doesn't get enough credit. He's, he's, he just always has his team ready. He's always ha- He always draws up the right plays for the right guys, puts the guys in the perfect positions to maximize their capabilities. So it's like even when the star players are going down, Steve Kerr is like, no problem. I'll just put this guy in. And I'll do what works for him to make his uh, effect on the game as high as it can possibly be. And I I feel like he, St- Steve Curry gets discredited a lot because people are like, oh, yeah, he just inherited this super team. But no, no, this dynasty would, would not exist without Curry's touches on it. I mean, piggybacking on that, could you imagine being Steve Kerr in this game? I mean, Curry's sick and had a terrible first half. He had a great third quarter and end of the second. But Clay injures his hamstring at the start of the fourth quarter. Looney pulled his collarbone, and I'm not really sure how you can – pull a bone I haven't really heard of that before but just having Steve Kerr just having to go through and put all these guys in the game like last night having Bogut go in Bogut's bought into the system comes in scores six points 
they just had so many different guys last night contributed. Bogut had six, Livingston had six, Cook had nine, and like next man up mentality. And the thing about the Warriors is like their health. They've played. I looked at the stat. They've averaged 102 games uh, per season for over the last five years. And that's just an insane amount of basketball mileage. And all these guys are just completely bought into the system. And Steve Kerr's reason why they all are. That's why, even though you could argue that Mark Jackson should not have been fired, Steve Kerr took this team to new heights that Mark Jackson would not have brought this team to. The team that Mark Jackson had was just a good team that had a ceiling of, you know, maybe the second round. But they weren't going to be a dynasty under him. And I think he deserves to be a coach elsewhere. But for anyone who thought that the Mark Jackson firing was a bad decision, I think all, all those voices need to be you know, silenced because of what Steve Kerr is doing with this team. I forget who said it, but basically when Mark Jackson was running that team, it was always just give the ball to Steph and let him try to do his thing. But then when Steve Kerr comes in, it's all about motion and ball movement and really trying to find the best shot. And you just you see what Steve Kerr brings to that system. And putting Draymond in the starting lineup. Steve Kerr revolutionized modern basketball with that motion offense. There's nothing like that. I mean, if I want to watch, like, incredibly perfect, beautiful basketball, I'll put on the Warriors and just watch that offense. And just the player movement, the screen, just every single play, every single player is constantly moving, constantly doing something. It's just incredible to watch. If I didn't know any of the players' names and the uniform, the uniforms are switched out for some plain white tank tops and shorts, I would have been like, oh, my God, I can watch this thing every single day for the rest of my life. I want to root for whatever team this is. But because I know their names and they wear those blue and yellow uniforms, it, I, I don't root for it. But it's, it's still, it, you have to marvel at it. You have to take away any biases or any preferences on who wins the game and just marvel at what you're witnessing. Because it's going to be gone one day, and we're going to look back at this and be like, wow, this is, this is just a masterpiece. What? Appreciate the dynasty. Yeah. Yes. I might not want them to win, but respect greatness while it's there. The NBA has always been run by dynasties. Why should this be any different? Yep. People don't like the, the super team thing for whatever reason, even though the NBA has been about super teams since, I don't know, the beginning of time. Yeah, I mean, there's always been super teams, and I don't know why, but I went into this series just wanting to watch good basketball, and subconsciously, through the first two games, I've been rooting for the Warriors, and it's not even that I hate Toronto for beating Philly. Like, I have no ill feelings towards Toronto at all. Nothing. I'm not mad at them. I mean, it's just that Kawhi shot. That I'm not even mad at Kawhi about that. It's just you can't really control those things. And I didn't even hate the Raptors through the series. I mean, Kawhi, or Kyle Lowry annoyed me from time to time just with his antics and his flopping and just whining at the refs. But I don't don't hate this Raptors team, and I just kind of want this Warriors team to win. Not really sure why. It might just be because I want them to win and get it over with, so KD is definitely leaving. But I don't know. It's just it's strange. I find myself rooting for the Warriors, which I never thought I would because I've been rooting against them for the last five years. I just want them to rip the Band-Aid off, get it over with, get it done with, send Kawhi West, hopefully. I think it would just be easier for everybody if the Warriors pulled this out. There is a legitimate argument to be made that it's actually good 
for the near future of NBA fans if the Warriors win this title. Because if they win this title without Kevin Durant, then he's definitely gone. Kawhi's definitely gone out of Toronto, probably, like you said, out west. But if the Warriors lose this series, then Kevin Durant feels more inclined to stay because it kind of shows that they actually do need him. And I feel like it brings more legitimacy to his rings. And obviously, if he returns to Golden State, you know where they're going to be next year and probably the year after. So with that being said, I think there is a legit case to be made that if the Warriors win this title, that's actually good for the league moving forward. I agree with you 100%. Just shift the power to someone else. I mean, even the Warriors with Steph, Clay, and Draymond, they're probably still one, probably the favorite in the West next year. But it's still it's good for the league. Get KD out. I'm going to love KD on July 1st or whenever he signs. I'm going to love him again. I loved him before. I enjoyed this Warriors team even before this. So, but yeah, getting back to some game two talk. So that box and one defense on Steph Curry, I haven't seen a box and one in an NBA game in I don't know how long, but it worked. I mean, Nick Nurse applied it, especially in that fourth quarter. Curry was scoreless in the fourth quarter and didn't even, or he was scoreless since they uh, put in that box and one and Curry didn't even attempt a single shot in the fourth quarter. So they're just getting the ball out of Curry's hands, and their their thought, the Raptors' thought process was if Curry doesn't shoot the ball, then the possession's a win. Or even if Clay doesn't shoot the ball, if either one of them doesn't shoot the ball, then it's a win. And that was their mentality going into that last shot with Andre Goddard. I saw this ESPN or NBA advanced stats said that Iggy's hitting that shot was a 25% likelihood. So, but in the end, it was a good it was a good tactic, but the Warriors still came out on top. And that was a game, if you're the Raptors, that's a game you have to win because Kevon Looney is out, which is like their best defender. KD's not playing. Steph was, was sick, and Steph didn't even have his best game. I mean, last night, Steph was 6-17, 23 points, four rebounds, three assists. And Clay was out basically for the whole fourth quarter. And then Draymond had a decent game. But that's one of those games that you have to grab if you're the Raptors, if you want any chance of winning. And I think that was the only chance for the Raptors to even have a shot at winning the series, and I think it's over now. Toronto's given every opportunity down the stretch to really take it over. You know, Van Vliet started to lock up Steph, and like you said, he went scoreless in the fourth quarter. And then Toronto got stop after stop after stop, but they couldn't score either. And they only got it down to five with, you know, by the last minute or two. You know, Golden State went five minutes without scoring. And the best they could do was get it down to five. And then obviously, you know, Danny Green cut it to two and then Iggy hit the three. But they really, they, I don't want to say they threw the game away, but they had so many opportunities to make it closer than it was. Didn't they go like six minutes or like five and a half minutes without scoring a point in the third quarter? Yep. Yeah. Golden Before State. that Van Fleet three. Golden State started on an 18-0 run. And then didn't they go on a little run to end the, sec- uh, the, fir- the first half too? Uh, yeah, and so then it's, it's yeah, like Golden scored, State cut it to five. Yeah, so it's like they scored, like, 20-something unentered points. They're down by 12 at one point in the second quarter. That's just what the team can do to you. No no lead is safe. Even when you have a big lead on them, you're already feeling anxiety because you know that they're ready to make their surge. And I keep Golden, saying... Golden State's right. always been notorious for their third quarter. 
Toronto should feel lucky they were even within shouting distance after that third quarter. What they go in an 18-0 run? Yeah. Yeah. And there there weren't even that many threes. Like they were just playing at a million miles an hour downhill, pushing the ball, getting stops. Yeah, they were just getting to the bucket. That 18 run was led by those Curry Draymond pick and rolls. They just kept running it over and over and over again, and that's that's what sparked that 18 run and fueled it the entire time. A lot of smart cuts to the to the hole too, where th- those those were good because they they kept moving the pressure up, and then they just started cutting to the hole, and then they they were killing them with that. Also, I think last night one thing I saw is in game one we saw the Raptors, so the Warriors would score and the Raptors would treat those inbounds like they were fast breaks. And last night, Draymond kind of used a little bit of their own medicine. And on a few times after Raptors makes, Draymond would get the ball and just push it up the floor. And I think he had three layups off of those uh, Raptors made baskets where he just shot down the floor and either scored a layup or had a direct assist right off that. And just Draymond being aggressive offensively, I thought was really big for the Warriors because they need more offense. And he was really aggressive last night, going out Kyle Lowry, uh, even going at Pascal Siakam at times to go to the basket, which you don't really see Draymond doing a lot because especially when KD is in there with Clay and Steph at 100%, he's just a cutter and a distributor. So that was really big for him last night. And he was one assist shy of having four straight playoff triple doubles. That was a really, really good Draymond game. He he was trying to push the pace at every moment possible. And that that was that was just, that was so huge for them to maintain the momentum that they had at the end of the second half and for most of the second half too. I'm I'm so sick of Twitter people just downplaying how good Draymond is. I'm so sick of reading things about how he's just a product of being in that system with that talent around him. I I watch what he does night in night out in these games and it's brilliant. He does everything. He's an army Swiss knife. His basketball IQ is off the charts. He's a dog. He goes and brings it. I'm just... Like I was saying about Steve Kerr, I feel like he's disrespected. I feel like Draymond is disrespected by the masses, too. And it's a shame. I mean, even just as a defender, he's one of the best in the league. And then you put in his, like, offensive IQ. And just what he... He does all the things, all the little things that you want a player to... Like, want a player to do. He gets his 50-50 balls. He gets his long rebounds. He sets incredible screens off the ball. He's a great cutter, and he's just a smart basketball player. And he's he's a, a leader in that locker room. Exactly. Did you guys see that Draymond is the one that uh, like he took 100% blame for the whole thing that happened with Kevin Durant? You see that interview with Rachel Nichols where Draymond basically said to KD, he was like, yeah, that was my fault. Um, I let my emotions get a, part, like, a hold of me sometimes. And KD was – I thought this was cool from KD. KD was like, I don't want you using that as an excuse anymore. We're a championship team. We're a dynasty. You're not using that excuse anymore. Get a grip on your emotions. And I was like, dang, KD. I think Draymond's an easy target because he can be awkward looking sometimes and he looks like the, the D's nuts guy. But, <laughs> but, but for real, he's – He's just he, he can play in my team any day. Let me just put it like that. If I'm starting a basketball team, he can play in my team any day. He's one of those guys you can plug in on any team in the NBA, and he's immediately going to improve them. Also, another thing from last night is this is another reason why, if I'm Kawhi, I'm leaving Toronto. So Kawhi had 34 points last night, 8 of 20 shooting, 16 of 16 from the free throw line, and that's a, a quote-unquote good game for Kawhi. But if he doesn't get help from anybody else, then his team's going to lose. 
And if you're putting up those numbers and you're a superstar and your team is still losing in the NBA Finals, I mean, we've seen LeBron do this too. LeBron not getting help last year and then in 2015 when Kevin Love and Kyrie were both hurt. It's just hard to win when you're the only guy doing it. And with the Raptors' little cap flexibility they have over the next two years, if I'm Kawhi Leonard, there's not a consistent second guy. We saw Pascal Siakam last night. He had 12 points on 5 of 18 shooting. Um, Jamon and the whole Warriors defense um, adjusted. And he just – Pascal's not going to go 14 to 17 more than once. Like, that's not ever going to happen. So, it, it's just something to monitor with Kawhi Leonard, just not having a second guy that's, like, in the, in the same consistent guy every night. And Kyle Lowry hasn't had a good first two games, too, either. He had, um, well, first game he shot two of seven, and then last night he was four of 11. He was a team worst, minus 17. And he fouled out in, you know, with four minutes left in the fourth quarter when they really needed him, too. And Marcus Gasol had a bad game, too. He only had six points. And, yeah, like you said, in a game like this, they need Kawhi to go, you know, full Terminator mode and just sort of take over the game. And he can't, he can't do that every night out. And the thing is, too, uh, we're talking about what Kawhi's going to do next season. Why would he want to come back to Toronto, even if they do win this series? Look, Think about it. You have Kyle Lowry, who's, at this point, his playoff reputation is just some guy who is a very average player or below average player. And what is he, like 34, 35 years old? 34. Marcus Saul, who's also getting older and on many nights is nowhere to be found. You have Serge Ibaka, who's inconsistent. Uh, there's Pascal Siakam, who I like as a player. He's going to win the most improved player, but are we confident that he's going to be a reliable number two option on a consistent basis for years to come? Yeah, I am. Uh, th- this team is not built for the long run. This team is built to win this year and if they don't win this year that franchise is probably gonna go in a completely different direction i just don't think it's a very attractive situation for Kawhi leonard to stay and plus toronto's not gonna be this big destination for free agents so going on top of what you just said about them just not being built right so just some salary numbers for next year kyle lowry will be 34 next year, and he'll get paid $33.3 million. Marc Gasol, at age 34-35, will get paid $25.6 million next year. Serge Ibaka will be 30, but he's getting paid $23.27 million next year, and that's a lot of money for a guy that only shows up one out of every three or four games. Norm Powell gets paid $10 million next year, and then Van Fleet it gets $9 million next year, which I think that's worthy for his contract, but just look at, looking all at all that money, that's if I'm Kawhi, I'm like, all right, this year we have a chance to win. It's good, it's solid, but next year you're not going to have any roster flexibility until 2020, 2021. And you can go to the Clippers, who have two max slots, a ton of assets to trade for guys. They can even trade for KD if they wanted to. Have two max slots. They have Lou Williams on an eight million dollar per year contract. They have Montrez Harrell on a six million dollar contract for next year that Danilo Gallinari who will be on contract for next year as well and then Shigil Alexander and Landry Shamit that's already a better team if he joins than this Raptors team if you add in another max guy which if Kawhi goes to LA another guy is going to be a max player for sure it might end up that the Clippers without Kawhi 
give a better fight to the Warriors than this Raptors team with Kawhi. You know, yeah. Going six and, you know, those two brilliant victories on their home floor. And who's to say that that series will will not end up being tougher for the, on the Warriors than this current one? And because, like you said, I think the Raptors blew their chance to have any chance of this series last night. I've said it a bunch of times. This is part of the reason why I'm not too mad that Toronto beat us, because who knows what's going to happen this summer? And if it goes, and if it doesn't go according to plan for them, then who knows what's going to happen for this franchise in the future? I'm not saying they're going to move or anything, but it's going to be they're going to be in the lottery for a bunch of years. This is the There's, best chance they're ever going to have at a, at a at a title. There's so much boom and bust potential for every single East contender this year. You look at the Sixers. Jimmy and Tobias could both not re-sign, and they're back to just Joel Embiid and Ben Simmons. Chris Middleton could lead the Bucks, and it's just Giannis which, with a bunch of role players and Eric Bledsoe. Kawhi could lead the Raptors and lead them with nobody else. Uh, Kyrie could lead the Celtics, and the Celtics just have all their young guys. There's just so much potential for every team, high or low, in the East. So it'll just be something to monitor come July. What's scary, though, is if all the players you just named, if they all head to Western Conference teams, and then we're looking at the Eastern Conference, and it's just who even who's even there? Joel and Giannis, that's it. And then you, you literally have like 13 of the 15 best players in the West if that happens, which it's possible. You never know. You know Kyrie goes to the Lakers. Kawhi goes to the Clippers. Playoff, restructure the playoff seedings. I think that's what they should do, 1 through 16. This year it would have been the Sixers against the Thunder in the first round. That would have been exciting. I saw this thing on Twitter about it. There was a – I think it was 2013 or 2014 maybe. I forget the exact year. But the Phoenix Suns won 48 games and missed the playoffs. That was the last year with Isaiah Thomas, Goran, and Eric Bledsoe. And so they blew everything up. Wow, what a backcourt. Yeah. Not a lot of defense to be had, but <laughs> <laughs> but the fact you could but the fact they won 48 games and didn't make the playoffs is is insane to me. PJ Tucker was on that team too. I want to see those pick and roll defense numbers for that team that year. They must have definitely been 30th. Wait, so that means that back then Boston wouldn't make the playoffs if they were in that conference. Yeah, it's true. I just had a real quick point. You know, the moments in that game last night, you know, the first half and towards the end of the fourth when, um, you know, Golden State's offense was stagnant, that's why KD is so important because when Steph and Clay and all of them get locked up, you can just give the ball to KD and ISOs and just tell them to go get a bucket because he can attack mismatches and hit those tough contested shots. And he can help, and he can help with the defense on Kawhi too. So, yeah, they're – I mean <laughs> – I mean, they're they're definitely they're not better without KD, but but they they are better than with, you know with KD. I mean, yeah. Just speaking of that, Clay's kind of hopped into this KD role where he gets the ball on the wing during that motion, and he'll get off that flare screen and drive to the basket. And usually, what happens there is that's KD with the ball, and he'll drive to the basket to get his little like 15 foot pull up that he loves to do. And usually, now you see Andre Godala playing that Clay spot. 
And when Clay drives to the basket, defenders aren't going to respect Iggy's three-point shot. So Clay goes to the basket, and there's no shot. It's just a open three-pointer for Iggy that doesn't go down. But when Kevin Durant's driving that ball to the basket, the defender's going to stick on to Clay because they respect his three-point shot too much. So then Katie gets open drives to the basket and just opens up everything else. Because all the Toronto's been doing is they've been doubling Steph and Clay off these screens and off these motions and top blocking. And so the Warriors literally have two shooters on the floor at all times. And Toronto puts four guys, majority of their attention on Clay and Steph. So when Katie gets back, it just opens up everything else. All right, so report came out a few days ago that the Sixers are going to offer Jimmy Butler the full five-year, $190 million max contract, which is to the surprise of nobody because Josh Harris has said multiple times this year that the Sixers were going to offer Jimmy the max. Jimmy deserves the max because the Sixers would regret more not offering Jimmy the max and letting him leave than offering the max and paying him a ton of money in his age 34 and 35 season. So it's, it's a no-brainer. doesn't surprise anybody. Inject all of that into my veins. They really just don't have a choice. Yeah, if I mean it is a no-brainer. Just, just max. Just give the man his money, and just pay the man. Make him happy. Run it back. Run it back. Jimmy did everything he could to deserve that max, especially in the playoffs. He's the X factor. There's no way that game, that series against Toronto, went to seven games without him. It probably would have been what if Jimmy played how he did in the regular season. That would have been what five games maybe. Against Toronto, yeah, and he was he was clearly the the best player on the court whenever Joel wasn't hobbled or suffering from a stomach virus. So, I mean, he he's he so earned that money in the playoffs. And if the Sixers don't offer him the max, well, I mean, if the Sixers don't offer this max contract, then someone else is gonna make him happy and bring him somewhere else. I will say this on the pod right now. If the Sixers don't offer Jimmy Butler the max contract this summer, I will become a Celtics fan. Write it in stone. We'll I'll just ban the pod. I'll get a tattooed on my arm. But when Jimmy does sign the max, I will take 190 shots in honor of his 190 million. <laughs> I'll take 190 proof ever clear. Well, that's just moonshine. And you'll never be heard from again. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so... um. Do you guys think Tobias deserves a max then? Deserves or, like, needs? Because it's one of those things that's hard because I think one of the worst approaches you can take in free agency is having a good player and assuming you can automatically upgrade that player like the grass is always greener. And I think that's just a poor way of evaluating guys, especially when they're as good as Tobias. But it's also really hard to say that Tobias gave the Sixers a max contract output during his time with them. It's just a hard situation to be in because is Tobias Harris worth five years, $190 million for the Sixers team? Because they're going to be in a super high luxury tax, which which, uh, Josh Harris says he is going to pay. And Ben Simmons isn't even on his rookie extension yet. Is Tobias likely worth that money? No. But the Sixers need to offer him that money to have the best chance of winning a championship. So they will do that at all costs. But worst case scenario, what what have you pointed it out? If if they offer him the max and he doesn't take it, there's so many other options that they can use with that extra money to fill in other different holes in the roster. 
that actually would probably be better than just giving Toby all that money. As much as I love Toby, but they can use that money for other means. Part yeah, of, so that sorry, sorry, Mike, you go. Uh, p- part of me really wants Toby to come back on the max contract, but the other part of me just wants that money to be spent on upgrading the bench and adding more depth to this team, putting more uh, shooters, more three and D guys. So you guys, are t- Jay, you're talking about the numbers and the flexibility that there'd be on the roster if Tobias didn't resign, if he just left. So the five-year, $190 million max contract that first year, that money is 30% of the cap. The cap's $132.7 million next year. So Tobias would get paid $32.7 million in his first year. So if Tobias doesn't resign, that's three players essentially that could be paid if Tobias doesn't resign. You could look at that and say, okay, well, like in the playoffs, you only have like an eight-man roster, but then in the same breath, that's a whole lot of money you could spend on Mike Scott or securing James Ennis and Mike Scott or other guys. But if you max out Jimmy and Tobias and you have all the money you have now, there's $17 million for seven players, and that includes guys that get drafted this year. So there would be very – there would definitely be – Going, the Sixers will definitely go into the luxury tax this year, and that doesn't even include when Ben Simmons gets on his rookie extension the following summer. So we'll see. Uh, real it's quick. Not, it's not Sorry. my money. So if Josh Harris wants to dig into his pocket, it's good for him. Also, Woj Bomb. Yep. I was just going to Oh. Yep. Bogut time. Playoff Bogut. Wow. Wow. Golden State Warriors forward Kevon Looney suffers a fracture in his collarbone and will be out indefinitely in the NBA Finals. Well, Boogie went from eight minutes to 28 minutes in game two, and I'm thinking he's probably going to get close to 30 next game, as well as Boogie getting about 12. His legs are about to explode. He looked pretty good at the end of the game, though. His legs look pretty fresh. We'll probably get an update on Clay Thompson soon, tomorrow maybe, right? Yeah, definitely. I love mid-pod wedge bombs. Yeah, it, like, it like changes the dynamics of everything. Yeah. Did we have any more Tobias talk or no? I, feel like I just agree. We all had the same reaction. We all kind of like we're like, because oh, it's he's not worth the money, but we need Tobias to win a championship. So at least most think that. that. Yeah, it's, that. it's just really hard to like justify giving somebody a max deal to be like your fourth best player. Right, and that's where I'm. I'm in the room, or I'm in the boat where I think Tobias should get a front-loaded Demar Derozan-esque contract. Um, whether that's like four years, four hundred thirty-four million, where those first two years he gets more money than he would um getting a contract from any other team and it'd be more money than he'd get from anybody else and it's not a max but it's more um higher aav but it's less money overall so it hurts the cap less but and then again tobias harris is 26 so he does have a lot of miles on him for a 26 year old he's been in the league since he's 18 this will be his ninth year coming up but I don't know. I, I don't. 
I, I just don't like the sound of Tobias Harris, five years, $190 million. And I don't know if many other people would in the Sixer situation. Sort of like a, a damned if you do, damned if you don't situation. Exactly. And it's just so much easier to justify giving Jimmy Butler a lot of money because he's a two-way guy. I think he's going to age well, and he can clearly be, like, the best guy on your team at points. Like, I don't know if Tobias has that, like, level of, like, competitiveness, so to speak. Like, I don't know if he can be that guy. We also have to look at the... All right, you can go, Jeff. Sorry. Now I was just gonna say that e- either way, if if we give him the max and he takes it, if we offer him the max and he doesn't take it, I wouldn't lose sleep either way, honestly, because we can just use that money on other guys to fortify the bench. We also can think about this: this core five. They played ten games before the playoffs, and then there was twelve playoff games the Sixers played, and Embiid missed what? Embiid um, missed three games in the playoffs. So this core has played nineteen, twenty games together. So, and I think Tobias is the odd man out. He's the last guy to get added, and his game is probably – they kind of threw him in like Dario just kind of as a spot-up shooter. So I feel like next year, the more time he can get acclimated, assuming he re-signs with the team, the better he's going to get just because the more he gets comfortable and the more he's going to be able to find his role and his group within the offense. So I feel like Tobias is one of those guys that's going to get better the more he plays with Philly. Um and yeah, I mean, this team hasn't played that many games together, so Tobias just could have been super uncomfortable in those minutes, and just compared to what he was in Los Angeles. And in his first two thirds of the year with Los Angeles, he was an All Star. He's a, I thought he was an All Star snub in the West. Latest ESPN mock draft that released this morning had the Sixers getting Matisse Thybul at 24, Taylor Horton Tucker at 33, and Carson Edwards at 34. What are you guys' thoughts on that? I mean, it's amazing. No way it happens, but it's amazing. What was it? Thibel, Carson, THT? Thibel, THT, then Carson, yeah. Yeah, that's nuts. <laughs> I feel like that's a little too ideal for it to reach reality. I was looking at it, and so it was Grant Williams was there at 32, which I don't think is going to happen. Dylan Windler was there at 35. Admiral Schofield was there at 36. Bruno was there at 37. And then Daniel Gafford was there at 40. And then Chuma was there at 41. So, I mean, there's just so many guys in that range. And that's why, like, that range of players right there, I don't think the Sixers are going to keep 24, 33, and 34. Well, they're going to keep 24, but I don't think they're going to keep 33 and 34. But... Man, that range right there, like, you're going to hit on one of those guys. One of those guys is going to be a solid role player. Yeah, the the idea of Grant Williams being there in the second round, I just don't think that happens because I've seen so many mock drafts have him, like, mid-first round and maybe a little little below mid-first round. I don't see him going into the second round. I think no. around 20 is a good spot yeah. to project Grant Williams. Also, uh, the 40, at 42, the Sixers – uh, we're mocked Jonte Porter, so there's no way that happens. That's like a perfect scenario right there. What do you uh, instead of who you guys want to end up at number 24? Who do you guys think is gonna be there at 24? Well, I think 
I still have this feeling in my mind that it's just going to be Thibault because he seems like one of those. He seems like one of those guys. But I feel like the ideal pick at 24 would be Hero. But um, I don't know if he's going to be there at 24. I think Hero's gone before 20. I could see like Orlando, Brooklyn, or Indiana going up and grabbing him, or even Boston. Yeah, I think Indiana would snag him. Yeah. Or even Boston at 22. I just feel like it's so hard to project what's going to happen for a team this late in the round. You know, it's, it's different than projecting early round picks. There's, there's like such a long list of guys who might be there, who could be there. You never know what teams are going to start trading away picks for other assets. And especially this year, uh, like, since there's not a whole lot of top-end talent in the draft, like, picks like 20 through 40 could be all over the place. Like, guys are going to pick for fit more than they would in other drafts, I think, especially at that point. That's everything I'm reading, too, that this is the draft to, to trade down in. I've been kind of just going through my draft work this offseason. I think around, like, 15 to 45, the picks, there's not much discrepancy between guys. Like, the talent doesn't range that much. There's not a lot of talent range in that, in that area. So, I mean, I could see a guy like Dylan Windler at, like, in the mid-30s or Taylor Horton Tucker, wherever he goes. I could see him being better than a guy chosen at, like, 15 or 19. Or, like, Carson Edwards getting chosen in the 30s being better some, than some guys in the teens. So, I think post-lottery this year, it's a pretty – the talent level is pretty even. So, I do think a lot of teams are going to trade down. But I don't think at 24, I don't think Harrow, Cam Johnson, or Grant Williams are, is going to be there. I think the highest chance is going to be Grant Williams being there. But I don't see the, the Sixers really going after Grant Williams. I mean, if he's there, best player available. But I, I think I think Thibault falls to the late 20s. I don't know if the Sixers will actually get him. It would be a great fit. But I don't know. This this draft's, this is going to be one of the most fun drafts in a while just because of the talent level from 15 on. There's just so many question marks, and you have no idea what's going to happen. You, you think, think uh, you think Cam Johnson goes um, before 24? Oh, easily. I think Cam Johnson, there's no way Cam falls past – I mean, I don't think he goes past 21, honestly. There's no way. I think – I mean, I could easily see the Nets reaching up and grabbing him at 17 um, – the Spurs at 19, that'd be a perfect fit for him. And then even Boston at 20 or 22. So just because that, that range is just teams that are like lower seed playoff teams. And you could just plug Cam in and he'd be immediate contributor off the bench, like a 15-minute per game guy that spreads the floor. Yeah, I'm looking at Tankathon now. Um, they have us taking a – they had the Sixers taking Lou Dort 24th overall, which I don't know if I would take him at 24, honestly. I would yeah, not. not comfortable with him at 24. Do you see? Do you think there's any chance Philly goes and gets Ty Jerome at 24? Uh, I was thinking about that earlier. Landry wasn't like a consensus first round guy last year, and Ty's not this year. So I mean, it wouldn't surprise me that much. Phil, like he could definitely be there, you know, around 33 or 34 if the Sixers keep the either one of those picks. Yeah, I mean, right now the the last mock I've seen is has him at 26. I don't see the Blazers getting him at 25. The Nets don't need any more guards. The Warriors, I mean, maybe the Warriors grab him because Quinn Cook's going to get paid 
in the offseason, and Sean Livingston's getting really old. The Spurs don't need any more guards. The Bucks don't need a guard like Ty Drum, even more of like a Carson Edwards-esque guy or a forward that can stretch the floor. So, I don't know. I could, I could see him falling. It's funny. Tankathon has um, the Warriors getting a Cam Johnson. They haven't fallen to 28? Yep. Wow. So, what's y'all's realistic top five, top three to five list at 33 and 34? Assuming that they have both those picks. My five is, um, well, in, in no particular order. It's a Carson, uh, Schofield, Dylan Windler, Ty Jerome, and Bruno Fernando. If he if he somehow goes, th- if he drops that far. Mine, mine was a similar list. I had um, I had Admiral pretty high up on that though. I really like I really like him. I feel like I feel like he's getting a little overlooked in this draft by a lot of people, but I don't know, whatever reason, I mean, if the Sixers got him at 20, at 24, I'd, I'd be pretty happy about that one. Uh, mine is Carson, Ty Jerome, uh, THT, uh, Terrence Davis, and then my last one is between Daniel Gafford and Lou Dort. So I think in this range, 33, 34, you can see Grant Williams going anywhere from, I mean, I've seen mocks have him at 17 and some mocks have him in the low 30s. He could be a guy that falls like 15 spots, a range of like 15 spots. THT is the same way. I could see him going at like 22, but I also see him falling to like the low to mid 30s. So like my list would be, I don't, I don't think Grant Williams is there at 33, but I have mine's THT. Carson Edwards, um, Windler, um, and then I'd probably go Bruno and then Admiral. So that's probably like my five right there. I'd go Bruno over Admiral just because I think center's a bigger option than an, like a stretch four right now, just just with need based off need. And I think I think Carson Edwards could like a year in the G League could be a, a really solid guy. I mean you'd have him or Shake and one of those two guys is gonna pan out to be a solid role player. There and then Windler has a lot of upside. Just being a six-eight uh, shooting guard slash small forward with a super like a rapid, quick lefty release. I just I, I love uh, Windler's game. I know AJ does too. I'd take Windler at twenty-four and feel pretty okay about it. Oh, I'm right there with you. I love Windler's game. But getting about the Grant real quick, just thinking about it now, I could see him totally dropping a lot just because he's such a tweener right now at this point. And there are so many. There are a couple different aspects of his game that he's going to need to develop, and and just his his physical attributes too. He's he's such a tweener. Yeah, because he relies a lot. Like he has a good IQ, and he I think he's going to be immediately a good defensive player. But his post game isn't really going to really translate in his mid range shot. So we'll see. Also, um, Shams just tweeted MRI on. Clay Thompson confirmed a hamstring strain. He's likely questionable for game three. So he's playing. Yeah. Yeah, he's playing. He could do full Phil Rivers, torn ACL, and the AFC Championship and still play in the finals. Yeah, Steve Kerr said that he could be half dead, and he would say that he's fine. <laughs> I, but they were showing him walking um, like after the Warriors won the game, and he it, it looked a lot worse than it turned out to be. But obviously... I think it's not so much about whether he's going to play or not. It's just whether or not he's going to re-aggravate that. Because I feel like a lot of the 
he's going to have a lot of on his plate on Wednesday night just because of how thin the Warriors are getting. And so I'm just worried that um, how effective is he going to be and will he be put in the position where that injury gets re-aggravated. It was funny. On the, on the plague where he injured it, he was trying to draw a foul on a three-point attempt. James Harden effect is spread, causing hamstring injuries. It was such an awkward-looking play. Yeah, pretty flexible. Clearly not flexible enough, though. Yeah, true. If, if, if this injury happens in Game 1 of the Western Conference Finals, I don't, I don't think he comes back in that series at all. But it's just because the NBA, this is the NBA Finals, chips are on the line here. That's why I think he's gonna, he's gonna play. He's probably gonna play some big minutes tomorrow. I mean Wednesday night. Yeah, I mean even if Clay isn't that mobile tomorrow, just him being out there spreading the floor is gonna do enough. Because the Warriors' floor spacing right now is drastic the way it is. So. Last Friday and Saturday, the Sixers brought in Tobias Harris's brother, Tyler Harris. Uh, he's 24. He's a he went to Providence, played professionally in Japan last year. We averaged 21 points, 10 rebounds, and three assists. Brought him in for a workout on Friday and Saturday, and then on Monday, the Sixers hosted Terry Harris, Tobias's other younger brother, who played at NCA&T last year, averaged eight points per game in 21 minutes for a workout. And I think that's just the Sixers saying, hey, Tobias, we're loyal. We're giving your brothers a shot. Sign with us. Yeah, I don't really think it has much effect on what Tobias decides to do. It, it, you know, it really doesn't. I mean, it's just a nice gesture, really. Just like you said, just trying to show to Tobias, hey, we care. And we're going to give your brothers a shot. It's really nothing more than that to me. I mean, there's no way it can backfire. One of the dudes they brought in was like, some shooting guard from like Lipscomb, like, like there was it was just a nice move. Show Tobias they care, and yeah, there's no way it can backfire or turn out to be a bad idea. Right, it's not like they were risking anything, or it's not like they had anything to lose by doing it. Yeah, it's just kind of just like a friendly pat on the back to Tobias. Nothing else. And Terry Harris also, he already had a workout with. The Clippers and the Suns, and he's also going to have workouts in the next few days with the Nets, Kings, and Mavericks. I mean, I'm sure he can hoop, but like, I don't want to make him sound like he's a charity case, but there's definitely little motive behind asking Terry Harris to work out. Yeah. Appreciate you guys listening to this latest episode of the Six Your Sense podcast. Follow us at Sixer Cents on Twitter and visit us at thesixersense.com. Like, subscribe, follow us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, where we find podcasts. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.